Hello and welcome to this week's TES podcast. I'm Dave Speck and joining me is Catherine Luff. Hi, Catherine. Hello. We've got Will Stewart. Hi, Will. Hello. And on the line from Halifax, John Roberts. Hi, John. Hello. Now, John, you've written an exclusive uh, story on our website today. It's fresh controversy over Ofsted and off-rolling. And, John, you've obtained a document which sheds new light. Is, is that correct? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, so, Ofsted have been cracking down on off-rolling uh, through their new inspections. It's been something that we've been tracking for a while. Last year, there was controversy over an inspection report they did into a, a school, East Point Academy, yeah. um, where they seemed to find off-rolling but didn't say so so the report identified that pupils have been taken off roll in year 11 when they've been moved in alternative provision and that the leaders of the school couldn't explain why that was in their best interest yeah now that, that appeared to match Ofsted's definition of off-rolling and is exactly what they've found elsewhere where schools have been downgraded for off-rolling but in this report it just it just didn't say so it didn't draw any conclusions so we did a story about that but we've done a bit more digging and got um got hold of the inspector's notes for this inspection and um in those notes it actually refers to off-rolling taking place the inspectors right. or having taken place it says, uses um, the actual word off-rolling yeah so the the inspector's note says off-rolling to alternative provision has stopped but that this is new so that those notes suggest that the inspectors saw what was happening as off-rolling and that it had recently stopped um but you don't get that sense in the report so you've got um you've got a report that looks like it's identifying off-rolling that doesn't say so um, when other Ofsted reports with similar findings do. And then we've got these notes where the inspectors specifically do use the term off-rolling. Just, um, just for the listener, John, just tell, tell people how, how did you get hold of the notes, the, the inspector's notes from the inspection? Um, so this is something that you can, can request, and so we, we managed to obtain them through a freedom of information request. Um, sometimes they're more successful than others when you... Um, Ask for information from yeah. public authorities, but yeah, but that's how we that's how we got hold of them, oh, oh, oh. and it's it's no it's sorry useful because I think it, um one of the questions that Ofsted faces at the moment is how is it how is it reaching its judgments on off rolling, um and there's been a series of reports where the what seems like from the information you get from the report looks like identical practice kids are put into alternative provision and then in year eleven. They're taken off their original school role. That's the crucial and thing, isn't it? This year eleven, which is which is the cut-off point for when for when you'll count in league tables. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And what what Ofsted what Ofsted say is that in, in these reports is that the schools um, either that this either that this wasn't in the interest best interest of the kids, or that the leaders weren't able to demonstrate that it was in the best interest of the kids. Now, um, with the, um, the this East Point one. Um, we've asked why um, it wasn't described as off-rolling. In, in the asked, official report? Yeah, yeah, and we've also asked why the discrepancy between the report and the um, and the inspector's notes. Um, Ofsted has basically just said that their inspection reports speak for themselves. But there's a, there's a broader context to this. Because yeah. um, East Point Academy is run by Inspiration Trust, which is obviously a, a very high-profile, well-known and well-connected trust uh, founded by a government minister and who is that minister and, uh, john that's that's lord agnew yeah um and mary bowstead of the national education union has kind of raised that today uh, and and sort of questioned whether that is in any way a factor here and she said surely Ofsted wouldn't want the um the accusation made that they're 
they're reluctant to find off-rolling or negative findings in places where it would be politically uncomfortable. And I should oh, say that Hofstede have, Hofstede have rejected that flatly. But it's a very yeah. interesting story, I think. And um, I think from a school leader's perspective, it's difficult to read these reports and get a definitive sense of what Ofsted thinks. Um, and that, I think, is a problem. What what stands out? I mean, John's laid out brilliantly in, in one of the pieces that you can see on our website. Just it, it, it gives a list of, of Ofsted's verdicts and what they found in the reports. So you can see the inconsistencies almost at a glance. But but this is such a good case study, the, the, the East Point Academy, because you have, they've done a, another report on a school in the same town. It, I, I believe it's really close to, it's not just in the same town, is it in the same part of the town, John? That's right. And they, they um, So in both of these reports, it refers to the schools doing this, removing pupils off the school roll who were, um, who were attending alternative provision. And in both of the reports, it says that they were following local locally approved practices in doing that. So essentially, the sense in the report is that this is something that schools in the area do. It's, it's, a, it's a locally a local agreement. But one of these reports... Um, uh, identifies off-rolling. Identifies off-rolling and, um, and, and downgrades the school. Um, and the other report doesn't explicitly say the school is off-rolling. And doesn't downgrade the school. The school remains good. The, um, yeah. Uh, yeah. And then after that report came out, Inspiration Trust came out and explicitly said, Ofsted found no evidence of off-rolling here. We've gone to Ofsted and said, do you agree with that statement? Um, and all they've said is um, our reports speak for themselves. But I don't think they do. I, I, if someone to ask me the question, in Ofsted's mind, did they find off-rolling at East Point Academy? My answer would be, I don't know, because the report doesn't make it clear. And there is a big gap between the report and the inspector's notes. They say off-rolling in the inspector's notes. They, I, they describe the practice of off-rolling in all but name in the report. But why is it not there? I, I don't think that question's been answered. It's almost like the, the, what you've got, It's almost like somebody designed a scientific experiment to test whether offset is consistent or not. They've got, got two schools and, and they've found exactly the same thing and the same circumstances have made it happen. But... But one school's, that's the other thing, isn't it, that I don't think we touched on. Of these two schools, one preserved its good rating and the other, the other lowest off academy, was that actually downgraded because of off-rolling, John? Uh, it was one of the factors. I think, it's fair. I think it's probably fair to say that there was other factors there as well. There was issues around attendance records. And um, as well, the East Point Academy was a monitoring inspection. Um, but um, so, as such, it wouldn't have changed the grade. Um, but, but it preserved it, remains, but it was different yeah, outcome. Yeah, but the fact remains that what seems like identical um, practice in the same area is described very differently in two different reports, you know, within yeah, a couple of months. in two different other. trusts. And, and, and it's not a technicality. I mean, I mean, the, the off-rolling is, you know, is, is a really kind of insidious problem because it affects real children. And I, I think that's one thing. But the, the second thing is that... Um, I think schools have probably got a right to to know where they, to know where they stand, and you know to be yeah, able to look at yeah. Absolutely, I think the other thing I should say is that one thing that I found really interesting about this is that Ofsted, to its credit, has made off rolling a, a big focus. And you know, if they, if they weren't doing this, who would be? Um, so I, I feel like on the one hand, they deserve credit for that, but they themselves have said that this is a big deal and a form of gaming, and we're going to crack down on it. Um, when we then have gone to them and said. What's the reason for this, this discrepancy, for, for seemingly, on the face of it, identical findings to be presented differently? Yeah. Ofsted have come back and said, well, off-rolling isn't a major finding, 
and we describe it in different ways. And I just think Makes that's a sense. really odd position to take for something that the inspectorate themselves have said is a big deal and something that they're going to deal with, to then sort of suggest, well, it's it's not something that we need to report on uniformly. I, I just don't think... I, I don't know. That, that struck me as a really, um, a really interesting response. Yeah. All right. Well, look, John, it's, um, it's a brilliant investigation. It's it's all there on our website. There's three three separate stories on that. Um, and just sticking on off-rolling for a minute, because, I mean, something that Jeff Barton, the um, General Secretary of Askill, mentioned yesterday, um, story, another story on our website, is that there's a good way to get around off-rolling, to, to, to solve the problem once and for all, isn't there, Catherine? Is that something... Yeah, he um he's he's sort of he's written a piece for us about this uh today and he also made a speech about this at the um ethical leadership conference in London yesterday. Um and he's he's essentially said that you know there's there's never any he's very clear about it that there's never any excuse for off-rolling and gaming the system and that those are unethical practices yeah, and that they're yeah. wrong. Um but he did say that there are kind of uh, he used this phrase uh, perverse incentives within the system and he said that um, you know, the fact that, for example, he talked about, you know, a small number of rogue results being able to yeah, affect progress eight yeah. scores. Yeah. Um, and so he, he sort of said, you know, because schools are measured so much on progress eight and, and exam results, um, then it does kind of provide this sort of, you know, a, a little bit of a nudge to schools to, to perhaps act in these ways. and, and to The climate know, is there for off-rolling to happen, Yeah, if they're yeah. under pressure, then they may think, oh, well, that kid's not going to do very well. Yeah. Um, I mean, as, as as I say, he's very clear that obviously that, that isn't the right but, thing but to do. But he's come up with a, quite a simple solution, hasn't he? It, 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 as I understand it. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think he, he sort of, so he spoke about sort of how they could be measured on, on other things. And, yeah. and there were kind of various aspects that he said they, they could maybe be measured on. So a, a more balanced set of measures. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. So more, more balanced set of measures. So kind of looking at, you know, how do schools um, help pupils with extracurricular activities? Um, how do schools collaborate with other, other schools in their area? Um, how do they look after the well-being of their most vulnerable pupils? Yeah. Um, Inclusion so, and... and- Exactly. So, so but all of those. Sport things. was mentioned in there, wasn't it? Or I think, yeah, I think sport extracurricular. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and and I, I, I suppose what you're saying is that you know if schools were not uh, only valued on on the basis of progress eight, and and, and it wasn't such a focus, uh, then perhaps you know they they would be more inclusive I'm, I'm, because I mean, they, it, they'd see it as in, in their interest. Yeah. You may have a child who a year eleven who's brilliant at football, and I've taught kids like this in year eleven, really good footballers, but academically. Not interested at all. And they're the types that would, you know, that would affect the progress eight score. However, mm-hmm. if you had this sort of broader uh, measure of it, which included things like sport, somebody who's really good at football, you'd want to keep him in your school, you know, if, if he's going to. Absolutely. Know, he's, um, he's not talking about having one broader measure, though, is he? Or is he? No, he, he isn't. I think I think I think these are these are ideas for how how it could be made more broad. So that he he was kind of giving a list of these are the kinds of things schools could be measured yeah. on as well as. Their exam results, so that they don't have this sort of this nudge towards unethical behaviour. I've got yeah. Sorry, go on. I interrupted. Go on. Um, oh, I wasn't. wasn't no, I didn't. Well, what do you? <laughs> well, I, I just I. Well, there are two things. What, what one is when Jeff when he talked about it, I think he he thought he was talking, Catherine, if I'm right, in terms of how of how parents would um, would see this. Is that right? Yes, yeah. uh, he did say that. So he said also um, that that parents. Um, will often look at look at league tables, and that would be maybe kind of like a further pressure on the school. And so, in some ways, if you again, if if you if you take out these performance measures, or if you make them less of a focus, then it will mean 
schools feel less pressured because i i think if the focus is on parents and they solution I, I think it's a little bit of a misdiagnosis because in i don't think it's parents with lead tables that really drive schools behavior I, I, for two reasons i i think i think lead tables matter less to parents because they've become more complicated and parents are a bit more sophisticated about what they mean as far as I, I know and can see, I think parents are more driven by Ofsted reports and reputation. I, th- I think what really drives schools' behaviour in terms of perverse incentives, which I think Jess' analysis kind of hints at but isn't explicit, is, is it's, it's government performance measures. It's yeah, he like, said that, I think. He's, okay, he's well, well all right, okay. Well, well, maybe, well, for me, the parents is a bit of a red herring. But so what matters... So if you, you can have all of these um, measures in, but unless they're going to be the key thing as far as the school's future is concerned, mm. then it's not going to make any difference. Mm. So you haven't got floor targets anymore, but Progress 8 still matters because you're going to be judged by Ofsted on it. So unless Ofsted really does come along and say, OK, so we've got something about sport, we've got something about well-being, unless Ofsted treats that in, as, in the, it gives as much weight yeah. to that as exams, it'll make no difference. Because cause for a head, you know... Mm. You know Everybody comes into the job for the right reasons. To push you into doing something like off rolling, it's got to be quite a serious consequence. And, you know, unless any of these measures can really stop that from being a serious consequence, I think it's a nice idea, but I can't... Sorry, I'm banging on about it too much. But the other thing is it has kind of been... In a way, it's been tried before because when Gove came in, Dominic Cummings, as we all know for other reasons now, one of his key things he wanted to do was to stop gaming by introducing a breadth of measures. So that was one of the reasons why why you have the EBAC and the, I, th- I can't remember the other measures off the top of my head, but there were more academic measures that were put into league tables at the time, with the idea being that you, previous to that, it was just 5A star to C's GCSE, that it was much harder to gain them all. Mm. But again, I don't think it made that much difference because if you've got one overarching measure that everybody's measured by, then that's what's going to drive you. But also, like things like the EBAC, they are sort of purely academic as well. So you're still, even something like the EBAC, okay, you're looking at a broader curriculum maybe, but you're still looking at the cohort of pupils who are academically able, and those are not the pupils who tend to get off-rolled. So, yeah, so. and the EBAC is quite a good case in point because they brought that in and uh, to try and change behaviour, and it did, but only to an extent. Like That was in for two, three years, and it didn't change schools' behaviour that much because even though it's been published and even though it was out there, the stakes weren't too high on it. They were never going to lose their jobs on the back of it. You won't be marked down in offset inspection because of it. So yes, you might think, oh, it doesn't. It might not look as good when people look at that. But you think, well, I'm not going to lose my job over it. So you probably do. You know, you you still geared to the measure that will. Mm. Um, anyway, I'm and that's that's what. Yeah, it is interesting that kind of idea of incentives and what would actually change. And I, I think you're was, right, unless it's high stakes, then. Somebody responded, and I ought to remember their name, so apologies, you'll be out there, but um, somebody responded to this story with a tweet that actually flagged up a piece that Becky Allen had, had done about this, and I think it's called The um, the, uh, the Ungameable Game or something like that, and she was suggesting that the only real way that you could actually make league tables ungameable is like have a whole multiplicity of measures in and then have a, have a, a, a lottery um, that... That, that would decide which one of these measures and schools have no idea which one of these measures would be the high stakes one should have about okay. 20 <laughs> measures and then you have the national lottery yeah. system yeah. Um, that was an interesting idea but I, I think it really got to the heart of how difficult it is to solve it 
Yeah. Well, look, just pressing on, and we've got a couple of things to discuss uh, still if, we, if we've got time. Um, Catherine, a story you did uh, earlier in the week that teachers have the second lowest autonomy out of 11 professions. Well, just tell us a bit about that. Uh, yes, so this was um, based on a study of the, uh, by the National Foundation for Educational Research um, and it essentially found that um, apart from healthcare professionals, which includes doctors and nurses, then teachers had the lowest levels of, of, kind of professional autonomy and ownership of what they do. Um, and interestingly, it also showed that, um, that even if you stay in the profession, your level of autonomy doesn't really go up in the mm-hmm. way that it would in, in other kinds but, but of jobs. I mean, teachers do have control over things like behaviour management, classroom layout, lesson planning, mm. the way they teach. Um, yeah. So they it, it found they did have control over those. I think that the things where they lacked autonomy uh, were sort of, for, for one example, was kind of long-term professional development goals, that they have very little kind of choice or ownership over, over how they might you know, have a, have a yeah. goal for their, for their development. Um, and then other things were things like kind of people data input and yeah. assessment. So, so it's those curriculum, things. So obviously. exactly, yeah. curriculum content. So yeah. so you're, you're right that in terms of kind of how they do behaviour management or how they lay out their classroom, oh, they, 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 do, they do have yeah. They've probably got less autonomy on behaviour than they used to. I would, I would imagine so. With um, more kind of school-wide policies and... And, I think and on behaviour and curriculum, we've seen a bit of that, haven't we? Of um, this idea of some some kind of particularly multi academy trusts, where where there's a, some are seen as kind of like a loose federation of schools, but some are seen as a, a centrally driven one, mm-hmm. where decisions on behaviour or curriculum are taken from the centre. Yeah, and there's scripted lessons. That that was an idea that, yeah. was, oh, yes, that, that, yeah. that was coming in. So I mean, it's probably a minority, but. But, but, but there's a link to retention here as well, isn't there, Catherine? Because, you know, those with higher autonomy were more likely to stay in the profession. In, exactly. That was in other countries, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, so they so they were they were more likely to stay in the profession. They're more likely to have kind of job satisfaction. Um, and it, it did just show that, you know, that uh, I, I think if, if you if, if you went into senior leadership then or a leadership role, then then you would get more autonomy. But, but if you were a classroom teacher, um, yeah. then you were you know you didn't gain a kind of a level of ownership that you yeah. might in, in other yeah. professions so you know kind of after after your first five years ten years in the job then it didn't really make much yeah. difference in terms of how much control you had um and yeah it, it sort of suggested that 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 is a possibly if, if they improved that then teachers would be staying in the classroom because they'd feel that they had that level of control particularly over yeah. kind of where their career is going to go um, and lower stress as well apparently Yes, exactly. Yeah, greater autonomy leads to lower stress. Well, look, finally, um, the season, everyone seems to be going down with something. Um, but the, the, the lurgy. Um, <laughs> but teachers are the least likeliest professionals to feign illness or, in other words, pull a sickie. Um, is that right, Catherine? Is that... It is. So um, so they're much less likely to pull a sickie than um, these 23 other employment sectors that, that, that were in this survey. Um, and it, I suppose it shows that, I mean, we, we were both teachers, but I, I suppose it shows that there, there is sort of perhaps a certain level of pressure where you, you feel as though you, you shouldn't take, take time yeah. off. Uh, well, why is that? I mean, we, we, I mean, everyone listening to that will know. Everyone listening to this podcast will know. Why teachers are reluctant to, to feign illness because there, there's so much at stake for the pupils. You know, you, you, it's the duty and responsibility, isn't it? And, and the sort of the guilt that you, mm. you, you know, you've got, you've got hundred, possibly hundreds of kids relying on you every week. 
Yeah. And, um, did, did you two ever pull sickies when you were teachers? I'd have to say no, actually. I don't think I did. I, I don't think I, I did, actually. Um, well, what, what about as journalists? <laughs> oh, well, that's different, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Well, anyway, we, we, we've, have we rambled on enough? Um, are you uh, are you marking Brexit tonight, Will, with anything? Or? Uh, I that's the question. I'm not going to answer either way. For, for John, you're up in Brexit Heartland. You're in Yorkshire. Yorkshire's not Brexit Heartland. It's, it's <laughs> I don't, it's, think it don't, don't betray our the God's own God's own county is uh, heart. <laughs> I've, uh, I've never once heard anyone talk about Brexit in um, in public. Um, in, the only time I've ever been asked about it by like a stranger was a, a cabbie in London. Um, so yeah, there, there we go. Well, we'll leave you with the headline from today, one of the national papers. It's, uh, thank you, thank you, and goodbye. Oh wow. <laughs>